And I know we don't like to play the what-if game, right? <laughs> Especially as it pertains to Texas. But if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt, are they undefeated? It's difficult for me to say that they wouldn't be, honestly. All right, hello and welcome. Today is the Monday edition of Always College Football. Today is October 10th. We are approaching the midway point. And it's kind of odd to me because I feel like here we are, midway point of the season, man. I feel like it just started. Like I'm already having a little bit of depression starting to sink in. I kind of get this every year when you approach the midway point of the season. As the season gets more exciting and you start to find out who's a contender, who's a pretender, all this other stuff, uh, every week that we move past makes me just the tiniest bit sad and even like increasingly sad as the season goes along because I'm really going to miss the season when it's over. <laughs> We're at the halfway point. It's depressing. It's going too fast. It's just slowed down, but my goodness, did we have some great ones to watch this past weekend. Hope you enjoyed the games as much as we did. We're going to dive into an awful lot of breakdowns. All right, We have a lot of games, a lot of things to discuss some really compelling outcomes and some outcomes that were not compelling in the slightest. I'm looking at you, Red River. All right, we'll talk about that game as well. It's going to dive in and hit it from every possible angle, including explaining to you why Texas A&M's play call at the very end of the game was not that bad. Chill out, Johnny Manziel. All right, relax. It was not that bad. I'll explain. It was poorly executed, but it was not that bad. So I'll explain all that. As we move right into it, let's quit wasting time. Let's get into these matchups. Let's talk about it. All right, let's get into it. One of the most intriguing matchups of the weekend, at least coming into the weekend, was the offseason chatter about Texas A&M and Alabama. Many people didn't think the game would live up to the hype. I thought it'd be close. I didn't think it'd be that close. I thought Bama would win comfortably, couple touchdowns, but man, A&M came to play. A lot of things to take away from this game. First takeaway, you see just how important Bryce Young is to Alabama. And obviously, the passing attack with Jalen Milrow in there. I know he accounted for three touchdowns throwing it. And I know he's an explosive weapon, but my goodness, the mistakes were very, very evident. They had one interception, could have been three, a couple dropped picks by A&M put the ball in the deck a couple times. I know he's a young player, but the ball security was a significant issue. Credit to AM for ripping at it, swatting at it. Felt like they were constantly trying to knock that ball loose, and they were able to do so more times than most people would like to see wearing crimson and white. So it was a really solid, I thought, defensive performance from AM, really from start to finish. They did give up a couple big plays, give up a couple big plays in the passing game, some catch and runs. But I thought AM played pretty dang well on the defense side of the football, just like they have all season long. Jameer Gibbs, I thought, was the best player on the field for Alabama. He is phenomenal. And, and really, the last couple weeks, you start to see what he's capable of. Now, granted, is he ever going to be in a real featured role, knowing how this offense has kind of morphed into a little bit more of a pass-happy offense? Maybe not. I don't know. But I look at what he did, and he's clearly capable of being a bell cow back which I wasn't sure that he was. Now, McClellan's going to get his touches, and they're going to try to get the other guys in as well, but it's no no doubt right now. You can make a case. He's been Alabama's MVP. 154 rushing yards against AM. 360 in the last two weeks. 
That's the most in a two-game span for Alabama since Derrick Henry in 2015. So really been impressive to watch what they were doing. Uh, as far as Alabama's defense is concerned, relentless pressure. I mean, poor Haynes King, goodness gracious, that guy's living in the ice bath today because it was relentless pressure from start to finish. I did not think AM's offensive line played very well. Uh, I thought they did some nice things and had a couple good things going in the run game. But my goodness, the offensive line from AM really needs to take another step before they're really going to start playing at the top of college football, which is inevitably where they want to go. However, when you got a guy like Will Anderson, and I know he didn't have the sacks, but the guy had 12 pressures. That was a career high. I lost track of how many times he hit Haynes King. Haynes King, I thought, battled. I thought he really battled. And I thought the receivers for AM, for the most part, did a pretty dang good job. Um, those receivers, Muhammad's excellent. Obviously, Evan, number one, he's excellent. More on him in just a minute. But that's a really solid receiver core, and they showed it throughout the course of that game. I really like the weapons that AM has, and that was a little bit of a question mark maybe coming in to the season, especially without Anaya Smith, you know, kind of going into it. It's like, man, who, who are gonna, who's going to step up for AM? Well, not only do they step up, they proved that they won't miss a beat, likely a wide receiver, even in the absence of, I think, their most versatile offensive weapon, that it being Anaya Smith. So a lot of people, too, and we got to talk quickly about this, a lot of people dogging Jimbo Fisher last night and today, about the final play call. First of all, start in a few different discussions. One, they ran that play earlier in the game. It resulted in a touchdown. A little stick route by Moose, Moose's kid, Muhammad, right there to the left-hand side. Third receiver hit him on the out route. All right, so they scored on that play earlier in similar circumstances. So clearly the play doesn't stink. It is effective. It just, I'll explain why. It was poorly executed, okay? So the play wasn't bad. In order to take away that stick route that they had given up earlier, Bama decided to play one-on-one. -on -one. They tried to play outside leverage. That is pretty standard. Outside leverage man there from Alabama, especially that part of the field, mano e mano. I like the defensive play call from Pete Golding. The offensive play call, like I said, it worked earlier in the game. But when you have outside leverage and it's man coverage, you want to beat your man beater, which is the pylon comeback to the right-hand side. That's exactly where Haynes King went with the throw. It was the correct decision from him. The problem is he had no chance at quarterback because the route was awful. All right, no disrespect, the route was awful. When you run a pylon comeback, you have to get at least five yards deep into the end zone. This was a young freshman wide receiver that knew the game was on the line, probably saw the defense, and knew the ball was coming to him. So what did he do? He rushed it. He tried to get open too quickly, and as a result, the throw was late, and as a result, as he was making his comeback, he got outside the end zone. If he takes his time, pushes up, gets actual route depth, Haynes King's going to throw it exactly what he did, same timing on the throw, except the actual receiver is going to have two or three yards left as he gets five yards deep in the end zone, and then boom, you break right at the pylon. The throw is right there. It's very difficult to defend if you run the route properly. The route was awful. So I have no problem with Jimbo's play call. I just have, I have no problem with Haynes King's decision. I have no problem given the fact that he had to rush the throw. I have no problem with the throw. I only have a problem with the route. You have to be patient, especially especially when the game's on the line, but that's typical of a young player. 
trying to make a play. Everything gets rushed. And when things get rushed, the timing gets thrown off. This is not... And people are also saying, well, the timing. Why would you call a timing route like that? Y'all, it's not that complicated of a route. It's not like you have to like have guys meshing and you, you're timing up a motion. Like, it's a very simple route. However, he rushed it, ran it poorly, didn't get his depth. As a result, the throw was late. As a result, it was incomplete. So I didn't have a problem with the play call whatsoever. I just had a significant issue with the execution. Great win for Alabama. They survived to set up what should be an incredible game next week in Knoxville against what should be a team that's ranked in the top five, that being the Tennessee Volunteers. Megaray, let me ask you about Alabama, though, because this is a team now, after the Texas game, there was some sloppy play on the road there, and then you come into this A&M game, four turnovers, most since 2015, two missed field goals, two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. Like, is there any concern for like kind of how this team is playing not just yeah i don't think they're playing what is normally what we've come to expect with alabama football yeah and i don't think they're playing very well i mean it's as simple as that i mean and granted backup quarterback in the game all right ask oklahoma what it's like to have a backup quarterback in the game right like you survive in advance by the way there were a million different examples of backup quarterbacks having an impact on the football season. We're going to do a long discussion about backup quarterbacks here in the offseason. It's not the time for it, but backup quarterback is an incredibly important position, especially given how many have been thrust into big-time roles this season so far. So um, looking at, at Alabama, yeah, I mean, it was a sloppy performance, but you have a freshman making his first start. Um, didn't think Milrow played really that well. I think he's a dynamic athlete and I think he needs a lot of polish. Uh, but what he can't do is when he's moving in the pocket, put the ball in one hand like this. And his second fumble was awful. I mean, he's running up in the pocket. He's got people around him and he separates as soon as he gets close to contact. So, I mean, just polish there needs to be cleaned up. The accuracy stuff needs to be cleaned up. Was fortunate that AM dropped a couple interceptions. But yeah, I mean, a- Bama's got a lot to clean up. And if they don't play well next week, they will get beat. Uh, next week will be a very difficult matchup for them. It was a difficult matchup last year. I know the game got sideways late in the fourth quarter, but it was a difficult game there for the better part of three three quarters or so. So uh, this will be a difficult game next week, no doubt. And they got a thing, a lot of things to iron out. Uh, before they head on the road to Knoxville and play what I think is probably the best team that they've played this year. All right, let's talk now about Tennessee. What a performance. I, I was dead wrong on this game. I'll be the first one to admit. I thought for sure Tennessee would come out, be just a little bit flat coming off the bye week. Thought maybe it might take them a little while to get started. LSU's been a notoriously bad starting football team. They play awful in the first quarters. And I thought Tennessee might kind of drop their level of play too kind of match what LSU was doing. Obviously, that was not the case. I mean, Tennessee from start to finish. Now, self-inflicted errors from LSU for sure. But Tennessee from start to finish, man, they were by far the better team. So I got this one dead wrong. First couple possessions right there in the red zone, obviously. And if you look at two, when you look at just kind of the game, there was a moment, obviously, third and 10, critical moment in the game. Hendon Hooker gets sacked, fumbles the football. It gets picked up by a Tennessee player, a running back. He runs out the back door, makes it fourth and two. They pick up the fourth and two. Like that summed up the game perfectly. Like Tennessee made every play. You know, even the plays that were bad, they made them. You know, like I mean, they made them good. It was just one of those if it rains, it pours 
type of days. It's been so impressive to watch Hendon Hooker. I love their offense. I just love how they get the ball out of I mean, if you watch, yes, he does push it down the field for sure. I mean, there's a lot of throws that he's pushing it down the field. But, man, he must throw seven or eight balls a game, maybe more. And I don't chart it, but it feels like seven or eight balls a game that are right there at the line of scrimmage, taking advantage of soft coverage, getting it to his receivers, and then those guys run. I mean, that's such a confidence builder for a quarterback. So Josh Heupel, having played the position and having been a great college quarterback himself, he knows how to make sure his quarterback is very, very comfortable, man. Those quick, easy throws are a breeze, man. And they throw him time and time and time again. They get nice yardage out of him as well. They do a great job with their now screens and the things like that, the line of scrimmage. I love it. The other thing I love, too, is how this team ran the football. Uh, 263 rushing yards. It's the most by a Tennessee team against an AP-ranked opponent since 2016. I also love, too, that in Cedric Tillman's absence, you've allowed Brew McCoy to feature himself as a legit go-to weapon. I mean, Brew McCoy was going to be the Robin to Cedric Tillman's Batman. Now you might have two Batman right there on either side, right? He's really come on. And if you look at the fact that he's had two straight 100-yard receiving performances, came into the game with 300 career, 345 career receiving yards prior to the last game that they played. So it's really impressive to see how he's burst, finishing yesterday's game with 140 yards and a couple touchdowns. So very, very impressed with what I've seen from Brew McCoy throughout the course of this season. Uh, also, Hendon Hooker still hasn't thrown an interception this year. You know, Amazing, amazing run of making great decisions. Now, a lot of high percentage throws, but I mean, he's trying stuff over the middle. They're pushing things down the field. I mean, the fact that he hasn't thrown an interception yet with as much as they put on his plate is pretty dang remarkable. Since 2000, only two SEC quarterbacks have thrown multiple passing touchdowns and have had zero interceptions in each of the team's first five games of a season. Hendon Hooker and then Tua Tungabailoa, who did it both in 2018 and in 2019. So it's very, very impressive what we've seen from then. And then quickly on Tennessee's defense, how great were they on fourth down? I mean, excellent, excellent work on fourth down. That was an issue, remember, against Florida. Florida had converted five of six fourth down attempts, and they'd given up, gosh, they, I, I think Anthony Richardson on fourth down was like three for three for like 52 yards. So they were getting gashed on fourth down a couple weeks ago. Totally different story, obviously, this time around. Much better on fourth down. They had the fourth and four where they stopped booty. They had a great job on fourth and one when they stopped the run. The fourth and 10, which I'm still scratching my head about there right before the half, was a backbreaker for LSU, but they got that. They stole some points there. I don't know why they did that fourth and 10, by the way. That made no sense. You can't go for it with 30 seconds left in the half at midfield. Come on. They can't do it. The score at that point is 20 to 7. The next time LSU's offense takes the field, it's actually 30 to 7 because LSU took the field after Tennessee scored on the opening possession of the second half, too. So that was an absolute backbreaker. But credit to Tennessee. This has really been impressive to watch this team through the first five weeks. They're 5 and 0 for the first time since 2016, and they've scored 234 points this year. That's the most through their first five games since 1915. They scored 303 points in that 1915 season. Who doesn't remember that? 
All right, maybe my favorite game of the weekend as far as just how exciting it was. I just thought both sides played really well. Utah and UCLA, awesome game. Just loved it. I know it got a little sideways there in the fourth quarter, and it got a little bit interesting with the pick six there late. But for the most part, man, very exciting ball game between the Utes and the Bruins. This UCLA team is really fun to watch, y'all. If you haven't watched them yet, I'm telling you, you need to spend some time. Watch YouTube clips. Watch highlights. There's all these condensed games all over YouTube. Like, go watch them. This team is so fun to watch, man. They have great speed. They have great playmakers at running back and at wide receiver. They are awesome. I mean, they can flat out fly. Doreen Thompson-Robinson is playing the best football of his career by a mile. Finished with 300 passing yards and four touchdowns and a rushing touchdown. That's his fourth career game with four passing touchdowns and a rushing touchdown. That's the most by a Pac-12 player since 2004. Zach Charbonnet is off the charts, dude. This guy is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Look, I have a handful of favorite running backs. We've talked about them on the show. Bijan Robinson, Sean Tucker. I think Jameer Gibbs is entering that conversation. And Charbonnet is in that conversation now too, man. Like I have all my favorite running backs. He is in the mix. That's for sure, man. I love the way this guy runs. He's got better top end speed than I can remember. And they have a great dynamic offense that gets him a lot of opportunities to make guys miss in space. He's so difficult to bring down. Finished the 198 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown. This is his third straight game with at least 100 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown. He's the first UCLA player to do that since Joshua Kelly back in 2019. He also, that 198, that was a career high. So he is phenomenal, man. And this team is legit. I'm telling you, UCLA is the real deal. They have an off week. And they'll play on the road at Oregon a couple weeks from now. So I can't wait to see what that team looks like after the bye because UCLA is cooking. Utah, meanwhile, a lot of things still to clean up. Their rush defense is a problem. And they got to figure out a way to be better on the road, man. They just haven't been good on the road in a while. And that is going to plague them, especially as they navigate throughout the second half of the season. They have SC, though, coming to town this week. So all can be made right in the world if they can exercise that home field advantage and take advantage of what should be a crazy environment as a top six, top five team in USC comes right into the uh, into Salt Lake to play against the Utes. Love, love, love what I saw from UCLA. They might be one of my favorite teams this year. Let's move across town now to USC. Look, plenty of talk, plenty of conversation about USC, right? But there hasn't been as much about UCLA. We'll treat LA right. Don't worry. We're going to hit it from both sides. I'm from San Fernando Valley. I was born in Northridge, California. So I got to, I guess, tip the cap to, I guess, my original hometown, even though I claim Dallas. I mean, I guess I'm from LA. <laughs> so USC, they are off to their first 6-0 and start since 2006. That 16-year span between 6-0 and starts is the longest in program history. Amazing. Amazing what Lincoln Riley has been able to do and just how quickly he's been able to do it. It's a lot easier when you have great players, Caleb Williams being one of those. His numbers are really not off the charts as far as yardage is concerned, but he continues to make great decisions for the most part. Just one interception against the 14 touchdowns. The other thing I learned in this game, 
and I have a lot of respect, I might say, for Washington State. I think that's a good football team. I really do. So this was a good, strong, solid win from USC. I think I was most impressed with the fact that Travis Dye finished with 149 rushing yards, had fifth straight game with a rushing touchdown. That's the longest streak by a USC player since Ronald Jones back in 2017. He scored in six straight. So that's going to be very, very interesting to see if he can beat that mark. I think he probably will based on what we've seen up to this point. And based on how Utah got gashed on the ground, I think Travis Dye will have a heavy workload again next week. Maybe not as heavy as it was this past week. I think it's really cool to see how he's kind of blossomed into a bell cow back. Look, I've never really looked at him through the lens and, and thought that Travis Dye is a workhorse. But when you put 28 carries in the box score, that's something. All right. That was obviously the second most totes in a single game that he's ever had in his career. It was just the fourth time in his career, though, that he's gone beyond 20. And couple all that, the fact that he had 14 carries just in the fourth quarter alone, man, this is something I wanted to see from SC is can they put teams away by running and pounding the football? The answer after what I saw this past weekend is a resounding yes. So great, great sign to see that they can now put people away. I also think, hey, there were some there were some fortunate moments in this game, okay? We referenced the fact that Caleb Williams just has the one interception. Well, it was almost two, uh, if not for the holding penalty that wiped out the pick, all right? So I think, and then obviously you get the unsportsmanlike conduct, and then their next thing you know, they're, they're hitting Mario Williams for kind of the, the 24-yard strike that, not saying put the game on ice, but made it feel almost insurmountable that Washington State was going to be able to get back in the game. I want to also, because we haven't talked much about USC's defense, I want to also give a little credit to Tuli Tui Pelotu. This dude is playing his tail off. All right, He's been one of the best defensive linemen in the entire country. And I'm not sure a whole lot of people knew Hey, uh, about... No one's really paying attention, I don't think, for the most part, to SC's defense. They've been great as far as turning people over. They've also been great as far as getting after the opposing quarterback. 24 sacks this year already have surpassed the entire total from the season last year. They had just 21 sacks in all of 2021. They're already at 24 with six games to play. So clearly in a pretty good spot there for USC. I think when you look at Tupelotu, though, Three sacks, including four and a half tackles for loss last uh, in last night's game. That I mean, that's that's ridiculous. He has seven sacks, which is already tied for the most by any USC pass rusher in the last five years. Like I said, with six games still to play, he's going to blow that mark away, assuming he can stay healthy. Knock on wood for that. So, man, they're not just getting it done on the offensive side of the football, but the defensive side of the football for Lake and Riley is starting to emerge, which is very, very exciting. Let's move to Bedlam. Talk about two teams. One in a good way, one in a bad way. Oklahoma State, for two and a half quarters, kind of sleepwalking, man. Just not really a great performance. I mean, there was bad tackling, kind of the unforced errors that just missed opportunities. I just wasn't a great watch from them early on, but they're in the third quarter with Texas Tech's lead. I think it was, what, eight-point lead or so. They got going, and they finally kind of figured it out. It's like, all right, let's go, boys. And they turned it on. of 18 consecutive points unanswered, and then they didn't really allow anything. They gave up four consecutive scoring drives there in the second and third quarter to Texas Tech. 
but on the on Tech's final six drives, interception, two punts, and three consecutive turnovers on down. So it was nice to see them kind of tighten the screws down the stretch and play much better. If they play like they did in the last quarter and a half or so, that team can go with anybody. But man, the first two and a half quarters, just a lethargic performance. I don't know if they were kind of reading their press clippings this past week. Thought that Texas Tech might make it interesting, but ultimately they just couldn't do enough uh, there at the end of the game. So credit to Oklahoma State. Excellent performance. Spencer Sanders continues to do amazing things. Not his best performance. Wasn't super sharp, but man, his athleticism and his command uh, this year has been outstanding. Really, really outstanding. On the other side of the state, Oklahoma, my goodness, what are we doing? I mean, seriously, I was on the call for the Red River game. That was one of the worst performances I think I've ever seen in the booth. The worst game ever that I ever did in the booth was Oklahoma State at Pitt. That was in 2016. That was the worst game I ever did in the booth. I think Oklahoma State was up 49 nothing in the second quarter. This was close. All right, it was that bad. Look, I want to quickly give credit to Texas. That was an impressive performance. They took care of business. It was great to see Quinn Ewers out there. It was great to see Bijan Robinson tearing it up. He continues to play at an insanely high level. 267 yards and three touchdowns in the last two games against Oklahoma. So he has played really well in this game before. Did so again this past week. He was awesome. Absolutely awesome. The receivers for Texas off the charts. JT Sanders for Texas off the charts at tight end. This group, and I know we don't like to play the what-if game, right? <laughs> Especially as it pertains to Texas. But if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt, are they undefeated? It's difficult for me to say that they wouldn't be, honestly. I mean, they they would probably be undefeated if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt. But let's see what they do down the stretch. Because if that team shows up every week, Texas is a major issue for every single person, that, or every single team that they play, but more on the Sooners, man. Here's what was disappointing is I understand right now you don't have the personnel to be able to get the job done, especially on the defensive side of the football. They just don't have good enough players. I mean, it's as simple as that. Now, people want to look at Lincoln Riley leaving and all this other stuff. You also need to look at the fact that Nick Benito, Perrion Winfrey, Sunday players left that Oklahoma front. So the players ultimately at all three levels defensively, are just not good enough right now. Now, the development will come, and they're, they're going to get better, hopefully. There are a lot of young guys that they're rolling in there, but the players right now are just not able to hold up against bigger, more physical football teams, and that's what they faced in each of the last three weeks. And the scary thing is, y'all, it's not going to get better. Not this year. This is not an overnight fix. You look at the TCU game, there were things in that game. It's like, all right, you can fix a blown coverage or two. You can fix a poor angle by a safety as Max Duggan runs right around him. You can fix some of the things that they did poorly in the TCU game. But the things that they did in the Texas game cannot get fixed, especially on the defensive side of the football. And then moving to the offense, just to put the shutout in perspective. It's the largest shutout in program history. It's the largest loss to an unranked opponent in program history. It's the first time losing consecutive games by 30-plus points in program history. It's the first three-game losing streak since 1998 and the first 0-3 start in conference play since 1998. So this team right now 
playing historically bad football for a very proud program. On the offensive side of the football, I know you have one arm tied behind your back because you have a backup quarterback in the game, and I know how important Dylan Gabriel is to your offense. I get that. He's awesome. But you got to give Davis Bevel a chance. I mean, I, I did not like their performance. I did not like their plan. And like I said, I know that they were hamstrung without your starting quarterback. I get that. But you know who also had starting quarterbacks in the game that were lost this week and or backup quarterbacks that started? Kansas, Alabama, Arkansas. Do, do I need to go on? Like how many other quarterbacks have been lost this year and the backup can go in and is functional. How about the team you played against? Hudson Card. Yeah, he gave you a chance against Alabama, gets you a win against West Virginia. Like Hudson Card kept Texas's season afloat. The backup quarterback situation is a significant issue. And I think the fact that they wouldn't allow him to at least throw it downfield at all is very, very concerning. I mean, what was your goal offensively? Like just to lose close? Like not lose too badly? Like. I just didn't like their plan. When the thing got sideways and they're down four touchdowns, man, throw the kitchen sink at them. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I was disappointed in Oklahoma, man. I hope they can get things turned around. I, I really do. Uh, I like that staff. I like Jeff Levy a lot. Um, have a ton of respect for Jeff Levy. Love him. But, man, they got a, they got a lot of things to figure out uh, on that football team right now. And it's, it's going to get ugly, uh, I think, there in Norman. Lions, Tigers, and tailgates. Oh, my. The college football season is always a great time of year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich smoked sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked and have the perfect blend of spices. From buffalo sausage dip, sausage, chili, mac, and cheese, Eckrich smoked sausage is a quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckrich.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckrich, you do you. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. All right, time to move along. We told you earlier in the show we're close to the midway point, so we're going to do some midterm grades for first-year head coaches. All right, we have a bunch we need to get to, so we're going to hit five today. If we don't get to your coach, we'll get to it here in just a minute. So don't worry. We're, we're tomorrow or a couple days from now. Don't worry. We're going to get there. I promise you, okay? But, Coops, let's kick it off. Midterm grades. All right, midterm grades, first-year coaches. We're going to start with a tough one here. You talked about it a little, a little bit. What grade would you give Brent Venables at Oklahoma? A D. Because it's not a failing grade at this point because there have been bright moments. That's, that's, I think, what's most troubling about this team. You watch them against Nebraska, and you watch their defense against Nebraska and how they were flying around and making tackles in the open field and how... Yeah, Nebraska did some nice things early in the game, but man, they closed the door, right? I mean, it was, I mean, it's just, it's alarming to me just how different things are. And I look, I know they've lost a couple quality players. Like Billy Bowman being out is significant. He's very, very important to the back end. 
But I think it's going to be very important. I mean, here's the thing that was most troubling to me. I'm looking over and I'm watching Oklahoma play against Texas. I'm calling the game. And Texas is utilizing tempo. Okay? They're, they're running tempo on offense. And, and it's, it's not lightning speed, but it's, it's, it's pretty fast. You know? I mean, it's to the point where it's like, all right, you got to get going. Oklahoma, probably on two or three different occasions, is still looking at the sideline waiting for the call. And Texas is snapping the football. That can't happen, man. I mean, like, by the way, you don't have an excuse. Your offense runs tempo. So, like, you see it every day in practice. Like, it's not like, you know, it's like this is new. So, uh, here's the biggest thing about Brent Venables, though, right now is like, it's, he can still be successful. Like, people are like, oh, you know, it's like, dude, he's, he can still be successful. The, they have to get better players. I mean, ultimately, like, we, I know that that's not a cool thing to say. And I know that, like, hey, it's not, it's not personal. Like, it's it's just they are not very talented on defense, and and that is an issue, um, and and that's going to take a couple years to get there. The, the good news is now in the portal world, like you can get there a little bit faster, but the problem is it's just it's going to take a little bit of time, I think, because it's a very complex system. There's a there's a system that that does an awful lot, and they're going to bust things occasionally because of how much he tries to do defensively. That's great and all, but it's just they don't really have a defensive identity right now either. So offensively, I think they'll be fine. You know, I think you got to be more willing to to cut it loose, even if your backup quarterback's in the game. But offensively, I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over him. Defensively, man, this is not going to be just a wave the magic wand solution, and that's Brent Venable's. Bread and butter. That side of the ball has got to be better. So at this point, you know, I, I don't know how you can give it anything other than a D. All right, that's fair. Moving on to Baton Rouge. What midterm grade do you give Brian Kelly coming off of his second worst home loss of his as a head coach? You love twisting the knife as an as a just an Irish homer. I'm just, just love it. Giving you a stat. You it's his second love worst it. head loss. I'm just head telling coach. you, you love it. So hey, look, I'm just, you're I'm you're worse. You're on. You are on the cusp of being. You know, you towards Brian Kelly is comparable to that of Oklahoma fans towards Lincoln Riley. It's comparable. I'm not saying it's the it's same. Not I'm, not saying it's I'm happy. I, look, <laughs> all I, I'm not, there's no ill will towards Brian Kelly. I just gave you a fact. It's the second worst home loss of his head coaching career. I don't recall you making a, a anything. Did you say anything after Venables when you teed that one up? No, because you, I mean, we don't need to pour, pour salt on the wound on that. All right. I, I, I'm with you. You came in I'm, with a hey, D. I mean, like, like I said, and like, I'm, I'm sad. Like I want Oklahoma to do well. Like I want everyone to win. I like I really do. I, I hate it when teams play poorly and I, you know, it, it bums me out. It really does. Uh, speaking of playing poorly. Speaking, yeah, yeah. There's the transition. <laughs> Garrett is. All right. Uh, yesterday was, was pretty bad day for the LSU Tigers. It, it was, I mean, it was, it was a rough one. Um, here's, here's my problem. It's a B minus right now. Okay. It, it probably had they played yesterday more competitively. We're sitting there looking at, you know, a B. The, the thing I'll say about Brian Kelly is this team prior to last week from week one to week five had gotten better, a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. Like they, they'd improved in some form or fashion from one to two, to three, to four, to five. And then it all came crashing down. Defensively, 
They did not do a good job against the run. Thought they would, did not. They didn't run the ball very well themselves. They ran for just 55 yards on 28 carries. That's a good, solid two yards per carry. A uh, little bit less than two yards per carry if we're if we're splitting hairs there. But it ultimately, what I've been most disappointed in is that this receiver core has been very unimpressive. Uh, relatively speaking, Malik Neighbors been great. I'm not sure anyone's cost themselves more money than Kayshawn Booty at this point. Um, the guy's dropped six passes this year already, had another drop this past week, came in ha- having dropped one-fifth of the balls thrown his way. Uh, that's the highest mark in the Power Five. So, I mean, it's... But ultimately, Brian Kelly, I think this team has improved. And that's why I think it's still a, a solid grade of B. But yesterday's performance dropped him just a hair. So that would be, you know, one of the 12 quizzes. He just failed that one quiz. You know, so <laughs> I think that for the most part, he's done a pretty dang good job, though, here in year number one and making sure this team takes little steps each and every week. We'll see what they do. Did they bounce back this week when they go on the road in the swamp? and play against a Florida team that's coming off of a a solid performance against Missouri. All right, moving on to Notre Dame. What midterm grade do you give Marcus Freeman in year one? (laughs) Uh, Just for you, an F. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I think Marcus Freeman, after quite a bit of scrutiny right in the start and how they didn't play well, uh, they hung in there and battled against Ohio State. Who's played Ohio State better, I might add, than Notre Dame? Nobody. No one's even been close, by the way, to how well they've played against Ohio State. Ohio State's been running roughshod through anybody. Well, losing 21-10 is not terrible, right? <laughs> not terrible at all. I, I know you're Notre Dame and there are no moral victories, but here's the rest of the scores for Ohio State. 49-10, 49-20, 52-21, 77-21, 45-12. So no one's even been close when it comes to staying within striking distance of the Buckeyes, except for Notre Dame. So ultimately, like that's a pretty good performance. You look at the game against Marshall, that was a hangover game. No doubt about it, because this team defensively has been excellent really since that point. Since that game, yes, they gave up some yards to North Carolina, but who hasn't? I mean, Drake May is maybe playing as well at quarterback as as anybody in college football, but they found a way to get that win. The offense looked really nice in the process. And this win this past week against BYU, that is a really solid win. You look at this game against Stanford and UNLV coming up the next two weeks, you're looking at what's likely to be a five-game winning streak. Uh, No disrespect to UNLV, they're improved. No disrespect to Stanford, they're Stanford. Notre Dame should be looking at five and two prior to them playing your team, your other team, Syracuse. So look, a lot still on the schedule. Clemson still comes to them. This grade right now is a B, but it could actually get better. And based on how things went in the first two weeks, it's pretty amazing to see where they're at. All right, let's move on now. Where are we at now, Coops? All right, next one here. Lincoln Riley at USC. What is his midterm grade? How can it be anything other than an A? 
I mean, it, it's been phenomenal. And what I've been most impressed with too, like so much, so much about, you know, Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams and the excitement that you're going to get from the offensive side of the football. Like we knew they'd score points, right? Like that was not, that was not really a huge surprise, but what Alex Grinch is doing on the defensive side and how they're playing complementary football. And it, it hasn't been perfect. I mean, let's not get it twisted, right? Like this team kind of lived by way of the turnover there early on. And, and that's, that's difficult to sustain. But now they're attacking the quarterback. They're making it difficult, I think, on opposing offenses because of their penetration that they can create up front. I just, I've been very impressed with how improved and how clean the operation is offensively, too. I mean, just very clean, crisp. And the offensive line, I think, is much better than I've seen an offensive line look for SC in a while. I mean, there's just a lot to like about what they're doing. Now, I don't think. They're the best team in the Pac-12. Um, a lot of people think that they are. I, I lean personally. I lean just ever so slightly in favor of UCLA. But I think SC is is playing at a really high level of football. And that battle in LA, you know, down the road here a little bit, those two teams are still where I think they could potentially be. That's going to be a hell of a game between USC and UCLA. So I, I love very much how well they're playing and, I think part of it too, I, I probably shouldn't have this takeaway, but you look at what Oklahoma's struggling with and what SC is doing. Oklahoma kind of stuck in the mud, having a difficult time. SC's thriving. So you just see his value and you see just how good he is. And uh, this is going to be a program that's going to be in the mix like this every year, probably from, from here until the end of time, as long as Lincoln's there. All right, last one for today's midterm grades. Sonny Dykes at TCU. What grade do you give Sonny Dykes? Uh, it's an A right now. I mean, I they are real, man. I mean, you watch Not them. an A+. Plus? What a else plus has the guy got to do? Give him an A+. Plus. I don't care. Give him an A+. Plus. I'm, I'm fine with me. All right, A+. Plus because here's what I'm most impressed with. Uh, one, this is the theme of the day, by the way. He's got a backup quarterback in the game. All right, right. So Max Duggan, though, is thriving. Absolutely thriving. I, I think that this was just, this was a great situation. And Baron and I talked about this in the preseason. TCU was my, you know, probably one of my sleeper teams. Um, and I, I just, I liked the hire. And, and I love Gary Patterson. I love, I love him. He's one of my favorite guys. He recruited me. Like I've known him for 20 years nearly and appreciate everything he did at TCU. But I do think things just got a little bit stale there at the end. And it, it, that happens by the way, you're anytime you're at a place for 20 plus years, things are going to get just the tiniest bit stale. Well, in comes Sonny Dykes and they have excellent personnel at wide receiver. They have excellent quarterback. Max Duggan is playing phenomenal football. The offensive line has been fairly impressive. Yeah. They gave up a couple hits to Kansas yesterday, but They've been pretty good. I mean, if you watch them against Oklahoma, I mean, they were moving guys off the football. Uh, and then defensively, granted, yes, there are some things that need to be cleaned up. I would not say it's a great defensive football team. But there have been moments where you look at them, it's like, oh, okay. I mean, they kind of layer some pressures. Uh, the best example was probably in the Oklahoma game. 
thought they did a pretty dang good job in that game of, of being kind of relentless, flying around, layering pressures, making it kind of difficult for both Davis Bevel and for Dylan Gabriel when he was in there in the first 20 minutes of that ball game. So uh, very, very impressed with everything that's been done there at TCU, but it felt like it was primed for this success. This team felt ready to spring, and I'm, I'm not at all surprised, at all surprised, that he has had the success he's had here in the first few weeks of the season. Here's the issue with Sonny Dykes. I think Sonny's a really good coach. I think he's going to do a great job at TCU. I'm very optimistic. But this has not been a team that's played well in late October and November. I'm not talking about TCU. I'm talking about Sonny Dykes' SMU teams. So yes, last year, for example, starts the season 7-0, and loses four of his last five. Look back 2019. Granted, that was a while ago. Starts the season 8-0, lose two out of three. Next thing you know, they end up losing uh, three of the last five, finishing 10-3. and three. Start 8-0, finish 10-3. and three. So he needs to do a better job, I think, down the stretch because his teams at times have run out of gas. So A-plus up to this point, but from this point moving forward, that's when we're really going to evaluate what Sonny Dykes is and where he's advanced as a head coach. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. All right, we're pumped to be joined by this dude. No one played better than him this past week. It's Israel Abani Kanda, who did an amazing job. Dude, I don't know if you've seen some of the stats and some of the records that were shattered. This was like an all-time great game. Do you realize that? Oh yeah, definitely. And I was very thankful for sure. My whole team, the way we performed as a total, as as a as a whole, and it just you know I'm already honored for. Think about this. How first of all, how good is Tony Dorsett? Like all time great, right? Legendary. You shattered his record, like shattered it. He had three oh three. That was the record there at Pitt. You had three twenty, and if three twenty wasn't enough, you found. You found the end zone six times. Like, have you ever had a day like that before? Oh uh, yeah, little league. I had a day like that. I had a couple games like that in um, high school. I'll say four touchdowns the most in high school, but literally I had uh, seven touchdowns. I'm still trying to beat that record. <laughs> Wait, hang on a second. Little league. So you're talking about like pee wee football? You had seven? Yeah, I had seven touchdowns in one game. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. All right, so here's what we did. You broke Tony Dorsett's record. Uh, you're now your total is now the fourth most ever in ACC history. The six rushing touchdowns tied the ACC single game record with Kelvin Bryant way back in 1981. 40 years this record's been up there and you joined Ladanian Tomlinson and Ricky Williams. All right, you joined them as the only players on current Power 5 programs to rush for 300 yards and score six touchdowns in a game in the last 25 years. Ricky Williams and LaDainian Tomlinson. Yeah, that's that's a real shocker for me. For I feel so honored. I was just talking to my boss about that. 
Uh, we went out to eat breakfast, and we just talking like that. What I did—that's crazy. Cause I used to watch them when I was a kid. Ladainian Thomas, LT. I used to play them with Madden. I just used to watch them, so I feel, I feel, I'm real. It's unbelievable, man. So tell me about that game because it was a little bit of a slow starter, right? And then you guys just, man, what happened? I mean, what what changed? Because you guys, once you started hitting the Jets there in the second half, it was out the gates. Uh, we knew we had a bye week after this game. Uh, we just really wanted to empty our, our tanks, and we know what we could do and what we're capable of, and we just want to show the world what play football looked like. Tell me this. So we, we've spent some time with Coach Narduzzi, and, and he talked all offseason, man, we want to run the ball. We want to run the ball. Like we want, That's obviously got to give you a ton of confidence, knowing that he basically wants to completely change his offense from what you guys were last year in order to feature you more in the run game. So how did that make you feel? I would say not only me, but as a running back group, the running back group as a total on the team, we just took that as a chip on our shoulder that we got to show the world what Pitt running backs is about. It's amazing, man. What an incredible performance. You uh, you have some merch. I'm about to go on there and buy some stuff on your social media. I, Abanaconda, that's all. That's all. I just got to go on the Twitter and I can find it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, I love it. I love it. I'm going to have to load up. Are you going to get one that says like 320 and 6? What are you going to put on there now? Uh, I'm trying to think of some, some more designs. <laughs> more, <laughs> more stuff from the sweaters. When you look at where you guys are at right now, uh, obviously, hey, man, tough game against Georgia Tech. You know, I don't think anyone could have predicted that one. But you guys are still in good spot. I mean, this division's legit. I mean, it's really, really a solid division with what North Carolina – you got North Carolina and Miami, a lot of teams still look forward to. So what are you guys going to work on in the bye week now to make sure you're primed and ready for this second-half run? I'll just say keep doing what we got to keep doing uh, to win and just show, just keep showing the world pit football, just keep grinding. Running it out. When, when you look at like what Tennessee has gone on to do, and you guys had them on the road, I think a lot of people feel like, hey, if Keaton stays healthy, who knows what happens in that game, right? I mean, when you look at just you know how you've come up just a little bit short in a couple games, and yet everything's still sitting right there in front of you, you know, d- does it give you confidence knowing that, hey, man, we we kind of let a couple teams off the hook, but now, hey, we're we're about to find ourselves here in the back end. Definitely, that's what I said. We ready to show the world pit football. The past few games probably was like if you if you fix our mistakes, but yeah, we we ready to show the world pit football. Nah, I love it, man. Uh, you ever see Kenny walking around the facility up there? Oh yeah, I see him. I even watch them uh, watch them practice sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think it's a trip, though, that he walks next door and, and he's he's back at home with all you guys, man. And then he has to go to work and walk to the other side. That's a trip to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. We all family. You already know. He actually touched me after the game yesterday, uh, yesterday night. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. That's awesome, man. You say, next time I'm going a, I'm to a throw a little fake slide at him. That's the only move <laughs> I didn't bust out yesterday. <laughs> so, man, congratulations on the win. Congratulations on the performance, dude. I mean, that's like all-time great performance, man. So incredible stuff. Congrats. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you, we'll see you down the road. Thank you. No problem. All right. Some of the best things I saw this past weekend. Let's start with CJ Stroud. He has been on an absolute tear, along with everyone else associated with the Buckeyes. They have scored at least 45 points in five straight games for the first time in program history. They're also the first Big Ten team to score 45-plus points in five straight games since Michigan back in the 40s, back in 1946 and 1947. Michigan State, meanwhile, they've lost four straight games, all by double digits for the first time since 2022. 
And then how about these stats on CJ Stroud? Okay, not only does he have more career touchdowns than incompletions against Michigan State, that's pretty impressive when you take that into account. But on throws that traveled 10 plus yards downfield on Saturday, he was a perfect 11 for 11 for 297 and five touchdowns. That's the most such completions without an incompletion by a power five quarterback in the last 10 seasons. So have a day, CJ Stroud. All right. And then the other thing, maybe the interim tag isn't so bad after all. Do you realize that there are five interim coaches right now in college football? Arizona State, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Georgia Tech, and UAB. All five interim coaches got wins this past weekend. Sean Aguanu, Aguano, uh, excuse me, from Arizona State. They beat 21st ranked Washington. Very, very impressive win. Nebraska's Miss Mickey Joseph won on Friday night in what was uh, a difficult game to watch in a lot of ways. I personally really enjoyed it. Um, but Mickey Joseph picking up a win on Friday night as the Cornhuskers went to Rutgers and have now won consecutive Big Ten games for the first time since 2018 to keep themselves near the top of the West Division standings. Think about that. Nebraska is near the top of the Big Ten West. Near the top, not at the top, near the top. That's wild. Wisconsin, speaking of Big Ten West, Jimmy Leonard, in his debut, wins 42-7 against Northwestern. They were previously 0-3 against Power 5 opponents this season and a total of 45 points scored across those three games. So the fact that they were able to score 42 in his debut, very, very impressive. Georgia Tech's Brent Key is now 2-0 after beating Duke in overtime. Uh, the Yellow Jackets have won back-to-back games for the first time since 2018. Georgia Tech had lost 11 straight games following a win, which was the longest active streak in the FBS. So credit to Brent Key. He might actually get that job after all. We'll see what happens there. And then finally, Bryant Vincent at UAB, my current hometown in Birmingham, Alabama. Happy for Brian. They took care of business against Middle Tennessee. The Blazers started out to a 38-7 halftime lead and finished with a season-high 581 yards of total offense. So not a bad day to be an interim head coach. Awesome job. Congrats, guys. Really happy for y'all. All right. It was a great show today. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed everything that we were able to hit. We'll continue to hit some of these matchups. So stick with us, like, rate, and subscribe. You don't want to miss any of Always College Football. We're going to hit all these games from every possible angle throughout the rest of the week. We're going to have an amazing interview lined up later this week, too. We can't tell you who because it's not confirmed, but we're trying. It's the third Saturday in October coming up this week. That's a hint. All right. We're working on it, actively pursuing a big-time guest for y'all. So we really, really appreciate you being with us. Like I said, like, rate, and subscribe. doesn't matter if you're on the ESPN YouTube channel. Hit that thumbs up. Helps us out an awful lot. Subscribe to ESPN College Football's YouTube page. You'll be able to see all of our content on there as well. You can also hit us up in the podcast. That's Apple Podcast or on Spotify. Like, rate, and subscribe. Download the podcast. It's there every single day for you as well. So we'll be there, like always. <laughs> and then, of course... If you would, follow us on social media at AlwaysCFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. You can also hit us up in our email. Get to some of the mailbag questions that you've been sending in. They've been awesome, by the way. Really appreciate that. AlwaysCollegeFootball at gmail.com. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark Kubiak and Jack Foster, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you tomorrow. Remember, it's Always College Football.
Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.